grab your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. I got a question for you this morning. What will the end of the world be like? Yeah, think about it for a second. What will the end of the world be like? I mean, what comes to your mind when I say that phrase, the end of the world? I was curious to know uh, what people think about the end of the world, so I went to a very reputable and place with a lot of accurate information to find out the answer to this question. I went to Facebook. Yeah, and I got a lot of great answers, some good, some not, some serious, mostly not. Uh, most of my friends are pretty goofy, and I got everything from black holes to aliens to apes taking over the world to the rapture. It was a lot of fun, but you know, it kind of confirmed for me the truth that people have a lot of thoughts about the end of the world. I mean, think about how many books have been written and movies made about the apocalypse. Hollywood has made a lot of money. <laughs> off our fascination with the end of the world. Or think about how many times the end of the world has been predicted. Just in my lifetime, I know about Y2K, do y'all remember that? Then there was 2012 with the thing with the Mayan calendar or whatever, that was weird. Someone on my Facebook post tried to tell me that we're living into the world now because of COVID-19 and apparently, I had no idea, but apparently Bill Gates is doing something with microchips and man, it was, yeah, I'm kidding. But we are going to cover that in a future sermon. Um, but <laughs> people have a lot of interest in the end of the world, including Christians. Some of the best-selling Christian books of all time are from the Left Behind series, which um, really, you know, interesting stories. I, I'm not sure how entirely biblically accurate they are, but, you know, they, they had the books, and then they made the movies with Kirk Cameron. I watched that one in fourth grade, and I couldn't sleep for like a week. It was so scary to me. And then a few years ago, they did the reboot with Nicolas Cage, and we just said, why? Why? They also made a children's series, and believe it or not, they even made a left-behind video game. Doesn't sound very fun, does it? Yeah, let's just say there are some people who are doing pretty well from our fear and fascination with the end times, which means we need to proceed with caution, okay, in who we listen to and what we believe. In my experience, the more confident someone is in their end times views, the less you should listen to them. <laughs> like, it's okay to have opinions. It's okay to be interested in the end of the world. And it's even okay for us to disagree and to debate different ideas. But the key is, we want to do that humbly and cautiously. And most importantly, staying as close to God's word as we can. So this morning, as we continue walking through the book of Revelation, I want to give you three facts about the end of the world. Yeah, three facts about the end of the world. Amidst all the mystery and confusion and theories that are out there, I want to give you three things that we can know for sure about what that time will be like when this present age comes to an end. And then maybe you can go and tell your Facebook friends the truth, okay? But before we dig in, let's make sure we're in context. Let's recap where we've been. You'll remember Revelation is a letter written by the Apostle John to first century Christians. And in this letter, John recounts visions that were given to him by Jesus. So this revelation is a revelation from Jesus himself. We saw that in chapter 1. 
Then the next two chapters, we had seven messages that Jesus had for seven churches. And these churches were suffering from persecution and difficulty. And and their difficulty was the reason John wrote. It wasn't to tell them how or when the world was going to end. But it was to encourage them. to, To say to them this central message. Fear not. Jesus is on his throne. And we saw that very clearly the last two weeks in Revelation 4 and 5 where John recounted this vision of God on his throne and the Lamb being worthy of opening the scroll. And we said those two visions are our foundation. They are the guiding compass that's going to lead us through the rest of this book. If we can just remember that God is on his throne and Jesus is in control, we can figure out the rest together, okay? That was John's message 2,000 years ago and that's his message for us today as we look at Revelation 6, where we get a glimpse of the beginning of the end. So let's read this chapter together, and I want to invite you to please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? Amen. You can be seated. Now, before we look at the three facts about the end of the world, we need to step back and think about this chapter as a whole. Where does chapter 6 fit in the timeline? A lot of times when you see people teach through Revelation or have a Bible study through it, there's this nice, neat timeline of events like, okay, this is going to happen and this is going to be this many years and then we're going to see this. And the truth is, if you read Revelation, 
you're going to see that John does not give us a neat and tidy timeline. There are no dates or times. Things aren't always clearly one after the other. And I think the reason for that is because it's not as important as we want it to be. We want to know exactly what's going to happen. But John is writing to show us what the end will be like, not when the end will be. He's writing to show us what the end will be, not when the end will be. With that said, I am going to do my best to try to give you a rough timeline based on my own study. And I've said there's a lot of interpretations out there, but this is the way I see it. In these next several chapters, we're going to see three series of judgments. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. I believe the seven seals describe the time leading up to the end. The seven trumpets describe the time of great tribulation, and the seven bowls are God's final outpouring of judgment right before Christ's return. And I hold that view because of something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. So keep your finger at Revelation 6 and flip over with me to Matthew 24. Um, This chapter, it's really important for for understanding Revelation. Uh, Matthew 24 is what's known as the Olivet Discourse. It's one of Jesus' last messages to his disciples, and it's a response to the disciples' questions where they they said something we want to know. They said, hey, Jesus, when is the world going to end, and what's it going to be like? And this is how he responded. He told them there's going to be roughly three distinct time periods concerning the end. There will be the time leading up to the end, what he calls the birth pains. There will be the great tribulation. And lastly, there will be the actual return of Christ. And that's what I believe corresponds to, again, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. So look with me at Matthew 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Do you guys see the echoes of this in Revelation 6? This is why I believe what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 24 connects. But here's the question. Was Jesus telling the disciples to to look for these things in their lifetimes in the first century? Or was he talking to us? Well, I think the answer is yes. It's both. And this is something that is a little challenging, but I want you to hang with me and think about this. When the Bible talks about the end times or the last days, it's talking about the entire time between Christ's first and second coming. Give you an example. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 10 11. He said, These things were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. 
This meant Paul believed he was living in the end of the ages. Was he wrong? Was he off by a few thousand years? Well, no. As we said, the last days are the entire period between Christ's first and second coming. So the early church was living in the last days. We also are living in the last days. This is why many of the things Jesus said were going to happen have been happening and are still happening today. Wars, famines, earthquakes, false teachers, this has been going on for a long time. So in one sense, the seven seals of Revelation 6 speak of the condition and conditions we have experienced since Jesus went back to heaven. But at the same time, the New Testament also makes clear that things are going to get worse there will be a time of intensification during the tribulation. There will be an end to the end times, the last day to the last days. There will be an end to this age that will usher us into eternity. So I know that was a lot of background information there, but with that overview of the seven seals, here are the three facts we know about the end of the world according to Revelation 6. Here's the first. The world is bad and it will get worse. Thank you, Micah, for the understatement of the year. Uh, in case you didn't know, the world is messed up. <laughs> it's broken. Bad things are happening. Yeah, I do find it a little odd, though, when people say that 2020 was the worst year in history or this has got to be the end times because things have never been worse. I'm like, really? The Great Depression? Millions of people trapped in slavery? The Holocaust? World wars? <laughs> like, I know this year has been hard for a lot of people, but... History shows us that the world has always been a wreck. And we see this played out in these first four seals that the Lamb opens, which are commonly called the four horsemen. Once the Lamb opens a seal, one of the four living creatures says, come. And then oh, here comes a horse that symbolizes something bad. Let's look at those. The first horse we see is, is white. He's carrying a bow. Now this is the one that's most commonly debated, but because of the bow... Most likely this symbolizes war and military conquest. The second horse is, is bright red, symbolizing bloodshed. He takes peace from the earth and people begin to kill one another. So if the first horseman symbolized war from without, this one symbolizes war from within. This is rebellion and anarchy. The third horse is black and his rider has a pair of scales. You see a voice calling out and saying, hey, this is how much wheat and barley are going to be, which is about 10 to 12 times higher than normal. So this horse symbolizes famine. The fourth, fourth horse is pale, which is the color of a corpse or, or a person struck with terror. And we see the rider's name is death. He's given authority to kill a fourth of the earth. Taking all of these four horsemen together, we see destruction and chaos that has been going on since the beginning of time. War, murder, famine, death, these are not new things in the world. But it's clear that these things are going to get worse. They're going to become more frequent and more intense. So we should not be surprised when we see or experience these things ourselves. And it's only going to get worse. As the birth pains give way to the tribulation. So that's the first fact about the end of the world. The world is bad and it will get worse. Here's the second fact which won't make us feel any better. It's this. The church is persecuted and it will get worse. When the lamb opens the fifth seal, John sees the souls of martyrs under the altar in heaven. 
These are people who had been killed for their testimony in Jesus, and they're crying out, Oh, Lord, how long until you avenge us? How long? This is the cry for justice we see throughout the Bible, particularly in the Psalms. Psalm 13.1 says, 13 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? God is said to be a God of justice who fights for the oppressed and destroys the wicked. Isaiah 30.18 says that the Lord is a God of justice. Psalm 146.7 says God executes justice for the oppressed. And people, uh, and, sorry, if, if God is a God of justice and fairness, like these scriptures say, then, then why doesn't God do something? If God is a God of love, how can he allow his people to suffer in this way? I mean, that's what the cry of how long is all about. It's a biblical, God-honoring desire for God to act for the glory of his name. And notice how God responds. Look at verse 11 in chapter 6. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Here's how God responds to him. He says, not yet. There's still more Christians who have to die. Man, that's not the response we (laughs) might have expected. But this tells us that God is not unaware of his people's suffering and dying. I mean, notice the souls are under the altar. They're with God. He knows what happened to them. He saw it, and he's caring for them and giving them rest. Persecution and martyrdom are something God repeatedly tells his people to expect in his word. We saw that in the Olivet Discourse we just read. Jesus told his disciples they would be put to death, and they were. Paul echoed that to the early church. He said in 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's right there. God has warned us in the Bible. Christians are going to die for their faith. And this will happen until Jesus comes back. And in some parts of the world, it's happening now. We here in America, we read Revelation and we think, man, when that day comes, it's going to be awful. And people in other parts of the world read Revelation and think, man, that day is here now and it is awful. There are believers today who live in prison camps and have been ostracized by their families and their churches have been burned down and some even put to death. We praise God that here in America we don't experience that. We, we rightly advocate for religious freedom. And yes, it may be difficult to be a Christian in certain parts of this country. And yes, there are certain Christian beliefs that are highly unpopular in our culture's eyes. But we have not experienced persecution. Okay, Starbucks not putting Merry Christmas on their cups is not persecution. And to pretend that we know what this is like is disrespectful to our brothers and sisters who are suffering in the world today. But with that said, our day may come. We don't know. Some of us in this room may face persecution for our faith. Our children or grandchildren may experience that. Because we see in these verses that there are more martyrs still to come. God is not going to act until the number is complete. And this tells us that God is sovereign and just. 
over the suffering and death of his people. Right now, God is being patient. He's holding back his hand of judgment. He's allowing evil to have its day and persecute his church. But one day, he will restrain himself no more. His patience towards injustice will expire. Because here's the third fact about the end of the world we see. It's this. The Lord will act. And it will be devastating. When the Lamb opens the sixth seal, John sees this this cosmological chaos. There's an earthquake, and the sun turns black, and the moon turns red, and stars are falling from the sky, and mountains are moving. I mean, what is going on here? One of the, the biggest challenges in interpreting the book of Revelation is understanding the meaning of the symbols and what is symbolic and what is more literal. We often think that the most biblically faithful way to read the Bible is to always do it literally, which is is a good thought, but it's not always true. Think about Psalm 23. When I recite those words at a graveside funeral, I do not mean that God is literally leading actual sheep in his spare time or that we should all go lie down in a green pasture. Sounds nice. Like we understand David is using poetic language to teach us that God is guiding us. We also know when Jesus told his followers to eat his flesh and drink his blood, he was not promoting cannibalism. So the key is to do our best in interpreting the Bible in the way the original author intended it to be. Revelation is a book of visions. It's filled with this rich, symbolic language. So, so yeah, Jesus is literally going to return to the earth, but I don't think we're going to see him as a literal sheep with ten horns and ten eyes. So for the sixth seal, we may or may not see some of these terrifying things literally happening. I believe there will be a lot of chaos in the created order, in the created world. But to what extent, we just don't know. Regardless, whether you take this literally or figuratively, it's not good. It's God's judgment on the world, and it will be devastating. I mean, look at the the reaction people have to this moment. They hide themselves in caves and, and call out to the mountains, fall on us. I mean, they would rather die than experience and face the judgment of a holy God. And it tells us no one can escape it, not the rich, the powerful, even the kings. I mean, people who feel so secure normally, people have so much power, even them, everyone will run for their lives and hide. They hide from God, just as Adam and Eve did when they committed the first sin. Just as we do when we sense guilt and shame. It's it's terrifying to be exposed before God. And the last verse tells us the great day of their wrath has come. And we don't like to think about the idea of God's wrath. It's, it's uncomfortable. But the Bible makes clear God is a God of anger and wrath towards sin and evil. Habakkuk 1.13 tells us that God is so pure and holy that he cannot even look on evil. Yeah, he is patient now, allowing people a chance to repent. But one day, he will act and it will be devastating. This is why verse 17 ends with the question, who can stand? On this terrible day of judgment, who will be able to stand? 
who will be able to stand before God's wrath? I mean, who could stand there and say, oh, I'm not worried about God's judgment. You know, I'm a pretty good person. He knows my heart. I go to church. I haven't killed anybody. Who could plead their case before God? Who could possibly be good enough to avoid the judgment of God? We're all sinners. And all of us, we, we've rebelled against God. We've turned away. We've become his enemy. We've rejected him. And the very thing that God hates, we've, we've celebrated and promoted and as a result, we deserve God's judgment. I deserve God's wrath. We don't deserve his love and mercy. It would be totally just for God to just wipe us off the face of the earth. And if you don't understand that, then you don't understand the seriousness of sin. So who can stand? Who could possibly stand before God's terrible wrath the answer is no one no one can stand unless someone stands in our place we need someone who has not sinned who who's perfect who's worthy who's holy like God someone who doesn't have to hide from God but someone who can stand before him and be accepted and the amazing truth of the gospel is that we have someone to stand in our place, and his name is Jesus. We are not worthy to stand before God, but Jesus is. And on the cross, he took the judgment for our sin on himself. He, he took all of God's wrath so we don't have to. The same lamb that is issuing forth wrath is the same lamb who shows mercy to those who come to him in repentance and faith. So here's the truth that this passage leads us to walk away with. It's this. No one can stand before the Lamb unless the Lamb stands in his place. The end of the world will be a very difficult and trying time for all who are alive. But for those who know Jesus, we will have hope because we know the Lamb. We may suffer, face persecution, even die, but we will not face judgment because we know the Lamb. We're going to see that more next week. But here's the question I want to leave you with. Do you know the Lamb? Have you given your life to Jesus? If not, and I don't say this lightly, you will face the judgment of God. And I plead with you to run to Jesus before it's not too late. Because we're not here yet. That means if you're alive and breathing today, there is still time for you to repent and turn to Jesus. That is a fact. But one day the end will come. And it will be too late. That's a fact too we can't ignore. And on that day, it will finally be revealed to the whole world that our only hope is Jesus. Because no one can stand before the Lamb unless the Lamb stands in their place. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I confess my own sin. 
God, I don't measure up. I've chosen out of the wickedness of my own heart to do the very things that go against you. I've lied, I've cheated, I've lusted, I've hated. The list goes on and on and on. God, I'm the furthest thing from someone who deserves your grace and mercy. But God, I have confidence today before you because Jesus Christ took my place. I know and I believe that he died for me, that I might be forgiven, that I might have a clean slate before you, that I might appear righteous and holy as your son. God, thank you for that beautiful truth of the gospel, that you are a God who saves. You're a God who loves us so much that you wouldn't leave us in our sin, but you sent your son to rescue us. God, I pray today if there's anyone here that does not know your son Jesus, if there's anyone here who who fears that day of judgment, maybe they're sitting right here right now in terror. Because they know they don't have a relationship with you. God, I pray today would be the day they would turn. They would turn to you and turn to Christ and be saved. God, bring them to faith in Christ today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Maybe you are here this morning and you feel something stirring in your heart. Sometimes people describe that as like a tug or a pull or some kind of tossing inside. In my experience, when you feel that after hearing the word of God and hearing the gospel, that is a sign that God wants you to do something. That is a sign that the Holy Spirit is working in you. That's a good sign. So I want to encourage you, don't waste it. Don't let that feeling leave before you act on it. Maybe it's that God is calling you to be saved. He's calling you to trust in Jesus. Here's the good news with that. You don't have to go home and clean up your life. You don't have to come down front and recite anything. All you have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. All you have to do is trust in him today and you can be saved. So if that's you, I would love a chance to chat with you after the service I'll be around. I would love to pray with you and show you how you can become a follower of Jesus. As simple as that. But maybe God's doing something else in your heart. He he wants you to follow him in obedience and baptism or become a part of our church. Or maybe there's a sin that you need to repent of. So let me encourage you, don't waste God's speaking to you in this moment. Don't miss it. But do what God's calling you to do.